Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. I am on today with Biola Kazim, who is a sports media entrepreneur. You're welcome, Biola. Hi, Toby. Great to join you and um, obviously your listeners as well. If we go back 10, 15, or maybe 12 years ago, the sporting landscape in Nigeria was a bit different in terms of the experience. There was Mobi Track and Field, there was the Coca-Cola FA Cup. But now most of the experience have sort of transformed into betting centers and viewing centers. What happened? What exactly went wrong with our sporting landscape? It's a series of things. It's not just one thing that happened. Like you rightly said, there was a time where we had what you'd say was a flurry of activities and the private sector participation in sports via owning or sponsoring total sports assets and properties and events. Uh, but also, as you rightly said, over the past few years, 10 years, um, what we've seen is um, winning participation of the private sector. And like I said, it comes down to quite a number of factors. The first one, obviously, has got to be that threshold for transparency, the threshold for sticking to agreed KPIs and all of those kind of metrics are higher in private sector work than in public sector work. And so what we'll see is some dishonors in the expectations of this private sector when they put some of their money. Some of this money is CSR budget. Some of them is sponsorship and marketing budget. So when those KPIs and thresholds are not being met, naturally what you are going to see is withdrawals. What you see is sponsor fatigue. And what you see is outright refusal to even participate in that sphere. What has happened over the past few years as well that a lot of people in sports have not paid attention to is that we have witnessed the growth of entertainment as well, music and movies. Obviously, that growth has been organic and that growth is authentic. The connection that music and movies have to Nigerians right now is deeply authentic. So brands are taking a lot of the money that ordinarily will have gone into sports that is unaccounted for. They are finding transparency very difficult. They are finding um, their engagement levels are low because, I mean, people typically don't go to the stadium and they are not as well organized, so to speak. I'm taking all of that money into entertainment. And that money is it's like um, a self-fulfilling, um, how do I say this? So the more money you put into entertainment, the better entertainment gets, right? Yeah. And so entertainment events are getting better. Our movies are getting better. We are seeing cinema releases. We are seeing premieres. On the music side of things as well, you we are seeing packed halls. A couple of people have tried stadia shows. We are seeing growth in that sector. Some of these things were things that were not happening when sports sort of like add quite a bit of um, attention from the private sector. The other thing we will say as well is that fundamentally sports itself is, is an appetite that people have. The appetite is not necessarily served anymore by the local sports scene. So I like football. People like football. So if I'm not watching on the local scene, because I like football, I'll watch La Liga. I'll watch the EPL. I'll watch the German Bundesliga. I'll watch the Serie A. I'll watch the Champions League. I'll watch the English FA Cup. So my need for sports is not tied down by patriotism. So a lot of eyeballs, a lot of attention, a lot of engagement have gone to foreign sports. What we have seen as well is that brands have gone to where the eyeballs have gone. And so a lot of the monies that will have gone to the local sports scene, we are seeing brands sponsoring the biggest sporting properties in the world, putting millions of dollars behind it. The EPL, the Champions League, all of these big leagues are sponsored by brands that are active in Nigeria. Not necessarily local brands, but brands that are participating in the Nigerian economy, selling to Nigerian consumers, are taking their money, you know, in that direction. So it's a flurry of things that have happened 
but this more or less is sort of like the nutshell people have moved eyeballs have moved to entertainment to foreign sports and naturally the sponsorship money has moved as well let's try to unpack uh, some of the reasons obviously entertainment has grown over said period as well so now is it a question of a failure of creativity on the part of the organizers i mean if you look at a brand like the epl there is an entertainment element to that of course. brand as well so is it a failure of creativity on the part of sporting organizers to go the direction that the entertainment and obviously people's interests has gone over the years i think that the roots are a bit deeper than that uh, the first thing is that sports to a large extent in nigeria is part of the political patronage system sports in nigeria is highly subsidized by government so we have 20 clubs in the mpfl 17 of them are state owned most of the appointments of the club chairman are by the governors who appoint their friends their acolytes their political associates to run these clubs not necessarily based on competence but other factors like i said it's part of the political patronage system so the fundamental thing within sports in nigeria is is tied too deeply to government in that sense government controls it controls it by releasing budgets by appointing people to manage those budgets the people they are appointing those managing the budgets are not the smartest tools in the box that's the reality they are not there to grow things they are there to in quote run things and so the basic structure of a nigerian club for instance is that you have a club chairman appointed by the governor who is giving a budget every year he has to go and fight for funds to be released he has to pay his players there isn't enough emphasis to build the clubs into franchises that are self-sustaining that may be even profitable so that is the fundamental thing entertainment music and movies were less tied to government they had always sort of like existed in the private space where the evolution of the movie industry in Nigeria starting from the days of living in bondage where a couple of boys just coming together shoot movies try to sell first on cassettes then it gravitated into VCDs and on and on and on and it's grown into a multi-million dollar industry even within Nigeria so much so that is material for export people are consuming Nigerian content from all across the world but this was the origin same as well with music music was not as tied to government as sports has been tied to government from the world so when it was time to make the big push it was a lot easier if you wanted to make the big push in sports the first thing you need to fight is to decouple it from government government likes control but the control obviously is not allowing the value chain to be created or to be expanded the value chain simply does not exist because like i said the modus operandi is extremely too simple too too basic it is that there are 17 clubs some of them don't even have boards they just have some executive chairman guy who runs the club by fiat and so there's a basic lack of structure there's a basic lack of direction that means that we can't even start talking about how the EPL has been packaged to that level it should be said as well that the origins of the EPL in its present iteration started in 1992 when clubs broke free from the FA to start a premier league and Obviously, they had Sky Money to back them up initially, and they built a product that, I mean, it's being consumed all over the world. People are paying billions of dollars to have access and rights just to watch the EPL. It has become a cultural phenomenon in the sense that I read the start about seven of every 20 people that visit the UK go to an EPL stadium. It's become cultural. It's gone beyond sports. It's become a core part of tourism to England now. They've grown the assets, you know, into that. So if we're going to go in that direction, which ultimately we will have to go, the first thing we need to do is to decouple sports completely. Maybe not completely. Because the other thing as well is that you see there's an element of sports where 
there is a representative component of sports where sports teams represent Nigeria. Do you understand? So there are yeah. various federations in various sports who are supposed to put up teams to represent Nigeria. Government, obviously, will still control a bit of that. It doesn't have to be all of that. But professional sports, sports events, and all of those other parts of sports eventually will have to decoupled from government. I do quite a bit of work, you know, on the government side. And even people who are supposed to be organizing private events are constantly always writing letters, looking for government money to fund private events and talking about how it will take you off the street, yadi, yadi, yadi. So everyone or most people still sees government as the biggest funder of sports. That has to end. You have to put together events that deliver value, social value, economic value that ties to the aspirations of various brands. They can see it as a marketing platform, as a CSR tool, as an engagement tool, as a, I mean, whatever it is that they want to, you know, achieve with those things. You have to build and create events that speak to those things before you can access their money. So that is the direction we ultimately have to go. In a nutshell, entertainment and music found a lot more freedom, found it a lot easier to quickly scale and grow as they've done. With sports, it's a bit more difficult because for Fundamentally, sports is controlled, funded by government. Great point. Another angle I would like us to explore is that are there obvious Nigerian factor type constraints here? Because even back in the day, you go to some of these events, security is poor, the facilities are poorly maintained. So if a private company, for example, is going to invest and these investments are going to be privately led, Obviously, with no basic security and infrastructure, the scale of the investment are going to be higher, a lot higher. So are these some of the constraints that the industry is facing? Yes, definitely. But like I said, again, we'll have to look at the entertainment industry for some level of inspiration. Quite regularly, these guys pack out almost 5,000, 10,000 people. I mean, you probably will say in arenas where security is a bit more enhanced. But having said that, we organize about 380 matches in the MPFL, for instance. Most of them are quite safe. I attend quite a few. I have colleagues who go all across Nigeria. So they are quite safe. I think the bigger issue has to be, one, orientation. The disposition of fans to sports in Nigeria is that they are entitled to it. Fans expect to watch football games for free. I also think that because government funds sports, the guys who run clubs, even the national team, find it as a tool to in some way sell government to portray government i mean there's an example that i like to use the year enugu rangers won the league which was about four years ago i imagine four or five years ago right they were going to win the league for the first time they were going to win the league for the first time in 30 years i have like a senior friend a much older friend of mine but we're quite good friends who flew in for the uk he's been a rangers fan on his life he came to nigeria for the first time in nine years because the rangers were going to win the league he flew from the uk to nigeria flew from Lagos to Enugu, paid for hotel, paid for everything. But guess what? He didn't pay to enter into the stadium. The stadium was thrown free by the governor. Mm. Across the entire chain, he paid. But to access the football content itself, it was free. That is the point I'm trying to make. A lot of times, governors, those who run clubs, NFF presidents, state governors, will look at sports and just imagine that it's not supposed to be value creating from an economic point of view. Focus more on the social value through the gates open. The Super Eagles are the number one sports props in Nigeria. It's the most premium of all premium proxies in Nigeria. People are able to watch the Super Eagles in Oyo for free because many times the governor will say, through the gates open. What you are doing is that you are 
teaching people not to pay to consume sports. These are the same people who, after the game, will go to beer parlors and other places of social amelioration and pay for drinks and pay to be entertained. They go to cinemas to pay to watch movies. They are ready to pay for entertainment. They go for comedy shows. They are ready to pay for entertainment. But somewhere in them, by omission or commission, they believe deeply in their minds that they shouldn't be paying any significant sum to watch football. So these are some of the fundamentals that we need to speak about. Security itself ties back into money. And this is the analogy. Contrary to the feeling that sports is free, nothing about it is free. It takes billions to build a stadium, right? Yeah. It takes millions to maintain the stadium year on year. If you are going to put security in the stadium, there's a cost to it. Whether they are Nigerian policemen paid salaries or, or whatnot, there is a cost to gathering policemen into the stadium. If they are going to move their APC or some of their vehicles, it costs money to buy fuel into all of those things. All of these costs are things that should go into how you charge for entry because someone has got to pay for all of these things. So the kind of security we see at stadia typically is not based on a need, is not based on a budget. It is basically what is convenient. Do you understand what I'm trying to make? Yeah. So if we want to have a league that is secure, that is well-organized, that is well-run, then we need to fix the economic part of it. How much does it cost, for instance, to put a game together? Let's say it costs $2 million. How do you plan to make that $2 million back? If you are going to increase security and it's going to cost you an extra 500000 naira, how are you going to make that money? Clubs abroad, for instance, make money, their match revenues, through various means. There's concession stands, obviously selling overpriced food, high-profit margins, they sell corporate boxes, hospitality suits, executive packages, then they sell season tickets, and then they sell regular match day tickets. Even regular match day tickets are sold in accordance to the importance of the games. How much you buy a ticket two weeks to a game is even for how much you buy it two days to a game, two hours to a game, they are still available. You know, these are all of the things that go into just hosting one game. Some of these costs, of course, or some of these income will offset other costs, security and all whatnot. But here you have a game, you are just going to call a DPO to send a policeman. I don't know how much it is that they pay. But the point I'm making is that it is not empirical. It is not tied to data. It is not well thought out. It is just an activity. So socially, obviously, security can be better all across Nigeria. But if you put good sports events together, as with other entertainment nodes, if you put a nice thing together, you put adequate security there, people would come. The need to be entertained, the need to be with other people, the need to consume sports will always be there. If we organize better, we will see an improvement in football, we will see an improvement in the match day experience, and that would dovetail naturally into other factors like security. Let's zoom out a bit. Is there a correlation between investment and talent? Now, this is where I'm going with this. The Chinese have been investing a lot in football, for example, for years, attracting a lot of global football stars, even coaches. But we have failed to see a breakout Chinese footballer over the same period. So what's going on? Um, it depends. What I'll say is that the Chinese are very patient people. They've been investing in basketball even longer than football. They probably invested more money in basketball, you know, than football. <laughs> but they got their Yaoming, didn't they? But your right? Yaoming. <laughs> yeah, I know. But they got their Yaoming. Um, I think that it's a lot of things. I, you know, I, I mean, I don't live in China. I don't know how China is set up. But I think that some sports are, in quotes, a bit more natural to people, to various environments. So, for instance... The Indians will take to cricket. They will watch cricket. They love cricket. That's literally their sport. 
they've made some investments in football as well, but they are not going to get anything back from those investments really because or they probably will be very, very, very patient. I think that same will go for the Chinese. I think that basketball, baseball are sports that the average Chinese loves a lot more than football. So yes, it's a bit difficult for them to find breakout stars. Is there a correlation between investment and talent? Yes, to the extent that the talent already exists, to the extent that the interest already exists. We've seen environments like in Germany, for instance, where an increase in investments led to improvements in talent production, which ultimately led to Germany winning the World Cup. There's a direct line between the steps they took about 12 years before the World Cup and till the period where they won the World Cup. Bundesliga clubs invested a lot more, obviously had a bigger pipeline of talent. It became more competitive to become a professional footballer, which meant that the quality of the players improved and that dovetailed into the national team. So yes, to the extent that talent and interest already exists, investments improves outcome. To the extent that the interest and talent level is low, investments naturally would lead to some level of improvement. But would that improvement be impressive enough? I'm not sure. Would that improvement lead to you becoming a world champion? I'm not so sure. So let's talk about talent levels today, generally. Again, I'm zooming out here a bit. Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi have dominated the footballing landscape for over a decade. And I don't know, football fans, yes, they were tossing a bunch of names, Eden Hazard, Neymar. Is the talent level really high, in your opinion? Here's my baseline comparison. A couple of days ago, you tweeted about Seedorf and Zidane and how, in your opinion, they have comparable level of gift or talent or proficiency, whatever it is we use to measure. But it seems with today's generation, nobody really compares to Messi and Ronaldo. So, I mean, is the talent level just lower on average? So what we are seeing, and we've seen it time past in history, where one player or two players or three players are heads and shoulders above everyone else. From a talent point of view, maybe yes. But more than anything else are the other factors, focus, hard work, discipline. So, for instance, look at the closest talents to Messi Ronaldo. A couple of years ago, it looked like Neymar was on the fringes, right? It looked yeah. like he wasn't too far from them. Then he's made a couple of choices. First of all, you get you get the feeling that his own disposition to football is more fun than Messi and Ronaldo. There's a cold-bloodedness. There is an incredible level of focus. There is a level of intensity that I think that other players struggle with. Messi and Ronaldo average about 50 goals. They've averaged it across the last 10 years. Other players can hit 35 and then they go down to 25 and then 22 and then they just trail off. So I think that the difference, apart from talent, is that the level of work the level of improvement, the level of personal desire and personal motivation that Messi and Ronaldo have, other players just can't cope. So let's talk about data. Is data bad or good for football? This is what it's I mean. Bad. It's like everything else. Okay. It's, it's good and bad. Okay, this is what I mean. Say you watch an average match and they tell you Iniesta or Xavi had a 96% pass completion rate. And then some people in the sports punditry business start saying, by that measure, is better than Zidane or Snyder or Seedorf or whatever. So are these metrics, what are they really measuring, basically? The reality of the matter is that most pundits have, honestly and truly, most pundits are not objective. Most pundits 
have biases that are the fundamental basis of their analysis. And that's just the truth. Of course, they will use the data to back those biases. But the most important thing in football is context. All right. So if you say Mishavi and Iniesta have a 95% complete rate, you can use that to argue that they are excellent. You can also use that to argue that their passes were two-yard passes or, or whatnot. I think that it first of all comes with the point you are trying to prove. And then you use you back or use the data to back the points that you want to make. That really is what it's about. Only very few pundits are truly, honestly objective. Most of them are subjective. Most of them have biases. And those biases reflect in the analysis that they put forward. That really is my own analysis. I mean, quite a number of them are actually very dishonest. But that's fine. It's part of the bias that, that I was talking about. So that's what it is. Okay. So now I'm going to toss in four options for you. And I want you to pick one and tell me why. Um, the treble winning team of Sir Alex in 1999, as in Wenger's unbeaten double winning team, Jose Mourinho's Chelsea team, I mean the first time around, and Pep Guardiola's record-breaking city. Which is the best team in your opinion? In my opinion, it will be Sir Alex's um, treble winning team. That was the first time a team in England win a treble. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal achievement. No team in England has repeated it. For Jose Mourinho's Chelsea team, quite impressive a team. They never made the Champions League final. Pep Guardiola's 100 points team, where they got knocked out of the Champions League as well. I think the second round or the quarterfinal. And I think that even though a lot of people don't pay attention to it, there will always be a question mark on City's achievements. These are people who are being investigated by the EPL, by UEFA, and by the FA simultaneously. For the first time in history, they've been thrown out of the Champions League for FFP practices to build a squad. That same squad that they built the FFP funds that UEFA have now punished them for is the same squad that they used in the EPL. So City's model is like PSG's model, or maybe even worse, in the sense that they are fundamental breaches of ethics. They skirt around the rules and regulation to accumulate a squad that makes them incredibly competitive. So for me, they will lose some points for that. Asawenga's achievement as well, the invisible achievement of Asawenga, I mean, obviously, legendary, fantastic. But I think that a team that wins the EPL, that wins the Champions League, and wins the FA Cup all within a season has to stand out for me as the best. All of these teams are incredible. In my own if I were to put these teams in a particular order, it would be Sir Alex's team first, it would be Arsene Wenger's invisible second, it would be Jose Mourinho's team and Manchester City. Not because they did not achieve 100 points is phenomenal, but the way and manner, the things that underpin that achievement is fraudulent. And I'm going to constantly call that out. While we're on that point, what went wrong for Manchester United, really? I mean, is it the departure of the manager? Is it that they bought the wrong players or hired the wrong coaches? What went wrong? It's a lot of things, and the same thing that happened, you know, at Arsenal. When managers, successful managers, stay in a team for too long, they typically become the structure. They sort of like, there might be structures, but they become larger than life. They absorb all the structures. They become the structure. When they leave, structures that have, in some way, devolved into demand suddenly have to stand and optimize and perform. They haven't done that in years. So, for instance, United Scouts. How excellent were they when Sir Alex was going to be winning the title year on year? At Arsenal, Asawenga made all of the calls. So even though you were a scout, Asawenga would decide. When Asawenga leaves, you would now want to pivot back to clear structures, right? It's hard. It hasn't been that way for many years. One of the mistakes Manchester United made as well 
was to replace Sir Alex, obviously, with David Moyes. I mean, they are still paying you know, a price for that. An important reason, but one that a lot of people don't pay attention to as well, was that Sir Alex, long-time serving manager, David Gill, long-time CEO as well, left the same summer and handed over the reins of a successful, the biggest club in the world, to Edward Ward, who had never run a football club, to David Moyes, who had never run a successful football club. I mean, obviously, both of them, the introduction into top-level football was chastening. David Moyes was out of a job in, in what, eight months, seven months? And Woodward till today is still trying to find his feet in many respects. So I think that that was a big factor. The other factor as well is that Manchester United is caught in, I'll probably will say, an ideological war where there's a feeling that there's a specific way in which they must play. There's a feeling where managers who come in and seem to want to play in their own way are demonized for trying to do that, right? I think that the fans are looking for what is familiar. The club is not successful. You are not winning trophies. You are not as huge as you used to be in terms of winning. There's a pivot or there's a desire by the fans for something that is familiar. And that's the reason why Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's appointment has largely worked because it connects them back to a past that they are longing for. So the club with LVG, with Jose Mourinho, was caught in an ideological war. Must we play in a certain way? What certain way must we play? A manager who doesn't play in a fantasized way that is not articulated by even all of the fans. For instance, Jose Mourinho won an European trophy at Manchester United. He won the League Cup. He finished in the highest position ever since Alex left. Had the highest number of points. All of the numbers. But for some reason, he's supposed to be a villain. Why? Because United fans have convinced themselves that playing like Sir Alex is the holy grail. So United are now only going to Sokshia. Is he playing the Sir Alex way? I don't know. I'm not so sure. I've watched many United games. Horrible. But because he's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, because he's familiar, because he represents a link to the past, he's going to get a free pass. What I imagine will happen is that if over two, three years, he's also not winning trophies, you have another wing of the club that will come forth and say winning is what defines Manchester United. We've also had a period where the managers who have come in, LVG and Jose Mourinho, have also had to contend with the fact that the legends of the club, Scholes, the Gary Nevios, and all one who carry a lot of value in terms of shaping opinion of fans. I've not necessarily liked them, not because those two guys are bad coaches, but because also Scholes and Co. think that the only people who should be at Manchester United are people like them. And so when these guys come in, they are fundamentally treated as outsiders. And so their errors are amplified and their successes in some way are dismissed, quite frankly. And so we've had a period where when Jose Mourinho is struggling or LVG, it is a tragedy. They, they hate the club. They don't respect the club. When Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is struggling, it will be every other reason in the world except Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I imagine that United will be stuck in this rut for the next couple of years. So we'll see how it works. But it's just a lot of factors. It's a club. You necessarily won't say in a battle with itself because now there's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And so there's an alignment between who is the manager and the legends, you know, and the fans. The last alignment that has to happen now is result. The longer Ole Gunnar Solskjaer goes without a result, I imagine that we will not have loud agitations. You will not have situation where it's being condemned in the media, right? But there will be some grumbling by fans that, hey, we are not winning, right? We need to be winning. And I think that the challenge for Ole Gunnar like I said, there's an alignment with him now. There's an alignment with um, the legends, having a manager who is their friend. The fans also connect to a manager who comes from their past. The last thing that has to happen now is for Ole Gunnar to start winning. Mm. It's certainly surprising to me that Manchester United can be caught in an ideological 
value over play style because in my opinion, Manchester wasn't exactly sexy under Ferguson. Certainly not all the time. Oh yes. Any I mean honestly, the reality of the matter, these arguments are never usually made from a logical, objective point of view. They are made emotionally. And so people deceive themselves and say, oh, Sir Alex, who used to play fantastic football. I was a Manchester United fan. Or I am a Manchester United fan. I'm a match-going Manchester United fan. I regularly go to England to go and watch Manchester United. But the football was the football. There wasn't... It wasn't anywhere close to a clear philosophy like I said, Wenger, for instance. Right? I mean, some of the greatest moments in United's history were scruffy goals. And we got to a point where, for instance, when a Moran Falaini scores, United fans are unhappy because to them, it doesn't represent what they are about. And I'm like, what exactly are you about? The one thing you can take away from Sir Alex's time was winning. It wasn't so much for a philosophical approach to football or an ideological approach to football. Sir Alex was committed more to winning. He achieved that in various ways. I've seen United games under Sir Alex where United were battered, but somehow they found a way to win. And so when you come up with this idea that Manchester United is about entertainment, it's about attacking football, it's not necessarily true to the extent that Luis Van Gaal was not necessarily about defensive football. Jose Mourinho is not necessarily about... I mean, he's got the scoring record in Spain till this day. He had the scoring record in England for a while. He had the scoring record in Italy. So how he has been framed as a defensive coach and, you know, English football reportage is very, very strange. In my opinion, I think that it is dummified and brought down to such a low level so that more and more people can participate. It's the only league where you see People who didn't attend school think that they know what they are saying. And so players are friendly into creative players, defensive players, coaches are put into boxes, attacking coaches. All of these things aids understanding. I hope you understand the point I'm trying to make. It aids yeah, participation yeah. in conversations. But the real conversations, the real analysis is a lot more nuanced, it's a lot more complex. Demands a lot more intelligent thinking than all of the framing of Man U is attacking, Chelsea is defensive, Guardiola is attacking, Mourinho is defensive, Fellaini is not a ball playing player. I mean, I try to stay off it because it's become what it's become. It's increasingly more and more difficult to make sense because more and more people believe in this one track characterization of various people in the league to help them participate in the conversations about the league. It's great for the EPL because it helps them continue to propagate the league. The more people are talking about it, the more people feel like they know it, the more engaged they are, the more they will pay to access content, the more they will eventually want to visit the club in England, buy jerseys and all of those other ways that bring money. But the reality of the matter is that the analysis of the league is a lot more nuanced. And I don't think in general that my youth fans and the media have been fair to a large extent with Jose Mourinho and LVG in analysing their time. I certainly don't understand this obsession with philosophies, though. I mean, back in the day, nobody says that Capello plays a certain way as opposed to Lippi or Ericsson or whoever. This obsession with philosophy where if you don't play tiki-taka or play high-pressing, which is what is the sexiest thing now, you're a negative coach or you're a negative team. How did it get that bad? Mainly is the media. It's how the EPL is reported and analyzed in the media. Most football fans agree with what the journalists are saying because they are afraid to think independently and go against what they are hearing on TV all the time. So, I mean, I certainly agree with you. I don't think there's a right way to play football. I don't think there's a wrong way to play football. I certainly don't believe one coach is more than one is obsolete. I certainly don't think that football has moved past some people. I don't believe in all of those generalized popular opinions. I can unpack all of these things one by one and break it down and analyze it. I don't think one philosophy is superior. I don't think 
a manager who hasn't won anything is a great manager in the way Pochettino has been projected. I mean, we've seen a complete injection of logical thinking hmm. in analyzing football in England, where <laughs> one of the funniest things is how coaches, top-level coaches, are now being framed as successful to the extent of the youth that they improve. You know, we've had some of some strange some really, really strange. And the more these things are said to the media, I mean, obviously, the media has something called the agenda setting theory. The media shapes opinion, the set agenda. And the more they go in this direction, the more people are going to follow them. So it's unfortunate, but I mean, those who believe it will believe it. But there are a few of us who would rather figure this out ourselves. And, and that's fine. Let's talk about Murillo here. Let's talk about Jose Murillo. Why does he divide opinion so much? This is someone, in my opinion, who is one of the best tactical minds that we've seen in the last 20, 25 years. So why does he divide opinions? Is it a question of his media strategy or personality or because he wins so much? Why? Everybody it's loves to hate this guy. Why? <laughs> it's a lot of things. He has also benefited a lot from great reportage. Early in his career, when he was young, he was fresh, he was enigmatic, he was novel, he was giving the papers great headlines and all whatnot. But you know how it works. The media builds you up to tear you down. So I think he's in his tear you down phase now. Mm. And there's a lot of mindless, senseless attacks on him. If his player doesn't control the ball well, it's his fault. I remember the funniest one where Rashford would miss chances for England and the pundits in the studio would dovetail right back to Jose Mourinho in the studio about how he wasn't improving him and all whatnot. A lot of it, honestly, is rooted in the fact that when Mourinho was at the top, he robbed off the fans of a lot of clubs a wrong way. And many people, you know, have not forgiven him. Rather than own up and accept that that really is what underpins their dislike for him. They were hiding all sorts of things, you know, in football. Arsenal fans obviously don't love him because he had a lot of runnings with Arsene Wenger, where sometimes he was the aggressor, but many times as well, Arsene Wenger was the aggressor. Liverpool fans don't love him. He entered their chances of winning the league at Anfield, celebrated into the cameras. Of course, they would not forget. He never liked Liverpool. They don't like him. Manchester United fans also had their issues with him. He beats Alex Ferguson regularly. That celebration by Porto. You know, a few other things. He's just, he's just not a guy that everybody loves. Chelsea fans also... Ultimately, some, not all of them, fell out of love with him. When he left Chelsea the second time, came to join Manchester United. That broke something in them. And then he started to revise history uh, to say his time with them was a failure because KDB and Salah left as though his job must have gotten them ready to play for the first team. They have conveniently forgotten that. At that point in time, there was Balak. There was there were top-level players that KDB could not play with. Salah got a lot of opportunities. He couldn't deliver and then he had to leave, which is the nature of big clubs. I mean, the example I make to Chelsea fans is if Salah and KDB were as ready as you guys suggest. How come when they left Chelsea, they went to smaller clubs for three years before they now came back up? Do you understand? Yeah. It's not like they left Chelsea for Man City and they left Chelsea for Liverpool and started shining. Salah went on a journey to Roma and I think it was Fiorentina. KDB went to Feder Bremen and Wolfsburg before he came to Manchester City. And then they started playing well around 24, 25, which is around the age that you, you eventually, you know, will emerge. So, you see, here's the thing. The reason why a lot of people don't like him is also the reason why he's the most popular coach in the world. He's also the reason why many people love him. He's also the reason why he's got more endorsements than all managers in the world put together. It's the thing about life. The reason why some people don't like you is also the reason why you're a legend to others. And I, I think that this is life and you will have to take it in a stride. When he was winning regularly and he was at the top, he enjoyed it. It is a fresh moment, you know, for him now where he's the pantomime villain. He needs to. And I like the way he's dealt with it so far. He's living his life. He's sticking to his guns. He's doing what it is that he has. Well, obviously, you can see 
a willingness, a desperation by the media to demonize him. I also think that, you know, we live in an era now where news reportage is dictated by what the audience wants, not necessarily what is true. We are in the era of clickbait journalism. We are in the era of keywords where you search a keyword and look for what people are searching for. And I have a theory that negative Mourinho stories get a lot of traction. And so the media constantly tries to feed that audience who want to read negative things about Jose Mourinho. And so many things that are not his fault, they are going to frame it in a way that it is fault to put out the stories and put out the narratives that will get them the engagement, you know, that they want. Let's talk about somebody else that divides opinion so much. Mesut Ozil, a section of the fans hate him, a section of the fans love him. He's absolutely brilliant. He's a fantastic midfielder. And for some people, and certainly their former coach, Emery, it doesn't work hard enough. So the Ozil enigma, can you unpack that for us? It's, it's difficult. What we can agree on is the fact that Mesut Ozil over the past two years hasn't been at his best. He all, I mean, obviously, he's Arsenal's highest earner, but he's not Arsenal's best performer. Players like him, who look like luxury players, only look good when they are doing special things, so to speak, right? They are judged by higher standard. Expectations are a lot higher than everybody else. He's also unfortunate to have a look and a playing style that is detached, that is almost disinterested. And when clubs are not doing well, the first thing that happens is that fans have to unload their anger on someone in many respects. is Mertuzo Zil. One of the things as well is that the guys who shape a lot of the opinions of many Arsenal fans, the right and all whatnot of this world, also don't like him for whatever reason, because of these reasons. I mean, something I should say that's fundamental as well is in England, they like trials. They like to see efforts. Unlike maybe in Spain, for instance, where touches and passes and all of those technical things are the things they focus on. In England, they expect, for instance, if you are a number 10 or a number 9, when you walk out there defensively, they praise you for it. If you're a winger and you track back, they praise you for it. If you're a midfielder and you snap into tackles and you're running endlessly, they love you for it. Mesut Ozil is not any of all of those things. And so when he's not playing well or the team is not playing well, it's very, very easy to identify him as a villain. But the fundamental thing is that he's a very good player. He's on the win now, obviously. He's older. Um, we had the issues as well with the German national team. So it's been a couple of years where things haven't gone really, really well for him. But news of his demise have been greatly exaggerated. And he's taking a lot more flack than than he deserves. That's the truth. I, I will accept that to some extent. If you are paid £350,000 a week and your team is not playing well and for whatever reason you are not able to make the first team, the narrative is that you are constantly always injured or sick, the fans will get on your back. That is true. But the level of demonization that he has had to take, obviously, is not in tune with reality. Okay. Paul Kogwa, when are Manchester United fans and fans around the world going to see the promise of his talent, so to speak, manifested on the pitch? Or is that destined for another club at this point? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think that Pogba actually has been a good signing for Manchester United. He has also suffered from, not even so much for expectations, but for people focusing on the things that he doesn't do rather than the things that he does. There are few players in EPL that are better than Pogba. There are few players in EPL that are better passers. He's a really, really top-level player. And he's had a lot of good performances for Manchester United. I think that his personality with the colourful air, with the social media and all whatnot, projects him as someone who is unserious. But if you look across his entire career, he's always been professional. Pogba is the last guy that has ever run into trouble with any of his managers from a professionalism point of view. So when he performs for Manchester United, the bar is set so high that even if he does a 7 over 10, it is declared a poor performance. 
right? Unfortunately for him as well, he gets a lot of terrible, terrible, terrible reportage and a lot of unfair punditry where he's designated as a villain, which is not true. I think that United have seen some of the promise of Fuller, and I think that he would probably still do more for Manchester United. But the idea that he's a flop, the idea that he doesn't perform well, the idea that he plays badly all the time, is simply untrue. He plays quite well in most games. He's had a few bad games, like eventually will, but more often than not, he contributes. More often than not, going forward, he's the guy who tries the audacious things. He loses the ball a lot because he tries audacious things. Players like him who constantly lose the ball. It is the gift and the curse of being an exquisite talent. Pogba is a precocious talent. He's quite more talented than most other players. So I say to people that when you say, people say it should just be simple. It should do the simple things. When he does the simple things, then he becomes Scott McTominay. He is not Scott McTominay. He must do the exquisite thing. He must try the difficult pass. He must try to dribble. He must try to keep possession under pressure. That's what makes him special. And people are trying their best to judge him by how simple it becomes. Rather than focus on the fact that this is an exquisitely talented player who does a lot of great stuff, but they have decided to focus you know, on the things or on the mistakes that he makes. In my view, as a signing for Manchester United, I will rate him a, a solid 7 over 10. And I think that with Bruno Fernandes, with improved quality all around the team, United are a stronger team with Pogba than without Pogba. Okay, as a thought experiment, and I've done this with quite a few friends. If you ask people to name some of the best coaches in the world right now, or say in the last couple of years, they will tell you Pep Guardiola, obviously, Jose Mourinho, Hogan Club, Diego Simeone. Zinedine Zidane never comes up. And this is a guy that won three Champions League titles in a row. So why isn't Zidane getting the credit that I think he deserves as a coach or as a tactician? People just say, oh yeah, he's a great man manager and stuff like that. Why is that? It's, it's a lot of things. It's not so... It is the fact that I think that Madrid had already won one Champions League before he became manager. And so it appeared like that team was already good enough to win Champions League titles. A lot of it is the fact as well that Ronaldo had become what he had become. A game-winning coach and it looked as though, I mean, any manager who managed Ronaldo were, I mean, you almost, <laughs> you almost will win, you know, by default. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Um, yeah. It's also, I think, in my opinion that we are in an age now where coaches are judged more by philosophy than what they win. So quite strangely, if you ask a lot of people, you'll find some people saying, for instance, that Pochettino, you might find a few of them suggesting that Pochettino is a better manager than Zinedine Zidane. We've heard really, really strange things, you know, because mm. the reportage of football, the sexy football and all whatnot, is highly amplified. And managers like Allegri, managers like Zinedine Zidane, managers like Ancelotti have had their reputation not necessarily diminished intentionally, but because these other managers, Klopp, Pochettino, Pep Guardiola, to some extent, uh, the fellow at uh, PSG, his name um, eludes me now. You know, all of these managers are projected as cerebral, as intelligent, as advanced, and managers like Zinedine Zidane, who doesn't seem to be overtly invested in any playing philosophy, who's just committed to winning and get. I mean, he's almost a manager who resorts to the most basic. He just focuses on he focused on the strengths of his team. There was a time that Real Madrid, most of Real Madrid goals were scored by crossing and headed goals. He just focused on what will work. 
why people are invested in integrate passing shape structure pressing and all whatnot so it's come at a time where that is the focus that's what people have decided i mean he's a manager who has won three champions league titles in a decade that pep Guardiola has not even made one champions league final and Guardiola is said to be the best coach in Europe. A lot of it is based on how these things are reported. It's usually any manager who has won three Champions League titles on the bounce deserves to be in the conversation as being a great manager, at least of his milieu, if not of all time, at least of his milieu. But right now, reportage of football is focused on philosophy, on approach, on structure, rather than what you actually do on the pitch. And that's why uh, Pochettino is seen as some great manager even though he has won absolutely zero trophies. He was projected as Zinedine Zidane's replacement at Real Madrid. You know, so we've had some really, really strange things. But I share your view. The manager, like I said, who has won three Champions League on the bounce, obviously deserves to be in the conversation. A manager like Allegri, who has won so many titles at various clubs, deserves to be in the conversation. Allegri was fired, remember, at Juventus yeah. for Sarri to be employed, mainly because of the reportage of Sarri Ball and his approach. You know, and all whatnot. So it is the era we are in, unfortunately, for managers like Zinedine Zidane. That's interesting. COVID-19 has, uh, of course, did a number on the footballing season all over the world. Now, should Liverpool be declared the league title winner? Yes or no? And give your reasons. It's not so straightforward. I don't think it's a yes and no, you know, conversation. There's a lot of things tied to it. The EPL is... You know, it's, it's, it's what it is. There are, there are severe consequences if Liverpool are declared the champions. And then, so the bottom three clubs, are they going to get relegated? They will say to you that we haven't finished playing our game. So it's a lot more complicated than yes and no. The notion that I hold, though, is that whenever football resumes, whenever football resumes, the league should be completed. I don't think that you should stop something that is 80% done, that there is a high probability of somebody winning and then you scrap it to start all over again. I think that COVID-19 has lit a fire to the football calendar as we know it. And so the whole idea that when COVID goes, we need to start a new league so that we don't lose next season. You lose as many seasons as you lose as long as the one you've started is complete. So I am for the league being completed, not necessarily Liverpool being declared champions or the league being voided. I don't think that it is fair to void something that is 80% gone to start something back from zero. Whenever... COVID-19 allows all of us to come out and play sports safely. I think that the first priority should be to complete the league. And then you figure how to start next season and the season after. I don't think we should scrap a season, like I said, that is 75% gone to start another one from zero. Let's come back to Nigerian football and, of course, our national team, which has been performing, again, in my opinion, below par in the last few competitions. What's going on and how can we get back some of the magic that's been lost, so to speak? Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of things. So in 2013, we won in South Africa. I thought that, that was a really, really good opportunity for us to build out. But what happened was we missed the next two, the next two, um, I think, episodes of the competition. Yes, we did. We didn't play in the next two editions of the trophy. We've also gone through a period where, quite honestly, our talent pool has dried up. Quality of Nigerian players across board, in some way, is not as high as it used to be, at least when we were the preeminent team in Africa. Quantity, yes, we have players everywhere. Now, how many of our players are playing in top leagues? How many of our players are playing at top clubs? Right? All of yeah. these things impact your national team. The other problem that we have that is not always highlighted is the fact that our players so for instance i'll give you an example 
the Algerian team that won AFCON, even though they only just won AFCON, they've been together for about four or five years. Many of them actually played in Algeria before they went out to Europe. There is some, I don't want to call it fundamental philosophy, but there's almost a commonality in the approach to the game. With Nigeria, it's a bit more and more difficult because our players are leaving Nigeria a lot younger to various leagues. They are going to Turkey. They are going to second division in European clubs. And I think that, I don't know if I'll call it the rudimentary part of the game, but we just always find it a lot more difficult to become a really, really cohesive unit. And it's very, very difficult to achieve cohesiveness at the national team level if you don't have a league or a system that already builds a certain level of of approach to football. If you get what I, I mean, I don't know if my point is clear. But yeah, yeah. in general, what we've seen over the past six, seven years is that the national team cohesion, fluidity, fluency has been very, very difficult to achieve. And I think that, like I said, it's because we just... It always seems like a team of strength bedfellows put together. What also happens in Nigeria is that there's always a high price for failure. So if you look at the iteration of the Kleshi team that won Nations Cup in 2013, by 2017, almost all the players you know, had left. So it's almost as though we don't qualify for a competition or we don't win a competition. There is a heavy turnover of players. So we hardly you know, ever persevere. And that's why I say to people that I think that Ghana's Raw's biggest achievement over the past three years has been stability. We have a core group of about 16 players who are constantly regular in the national team and a revolving seven or eight, depending on their form and what their competition is doing outside. So I think that what we need to do is to be patient. We didn't qualify for last two Afcons and then Ghana Raw came and then we became the third best team in Africa. Prior to that, we qualified for Afcon very easily. We qualified for the World Cup easily. We went to the World Cup and put up I wouldn't call it a satisfactory performance, but it wasn't such a bad performance. It wasn't as bad as many people made it say. The national team is stable, maybe not exciting. The quality of players is not phenomenal. So we are seeing seeds. We are seeing signs that we might be onto something. And that's why I found all of the drama around the renewal of Raw's contract quite funny. Because it looks like we are going in the right direction. It might just be good to continue that journey, if you get what I'm trying to say. Rather than yeah. halt that journey end that phase, and then start all over. Because when the new manager comes, whether you like it or not, he's going to undo a lot of the things that Raw has done. And he's going to tell you that he's starting a phase. With Raw, he can't tell you he's starting a phase. He's continuing a phase. And so the next AFCON is going to Raw goals right now. Obviously, the target will not be to finish third. It will be to win it. You understand the point I'm trying to make? The team yep. will get incrementally better. Expectations will get incrementally higher. And everyone will respond to that rather than end it and start all over. So we've had Keshi since 2013. We had Keshi, we had Siasia, we had um, Blissey, then we had Siasia for a brief period before Gunnar Raw came, and then it looked like Raw was going to go, but it does look now like, like he's going to renew his deal. So the level of turnover of managers, turnover of players, I think that we just need to come down, achieve stability first, which is what we have achieved. And I think that over the next year or two, we can build on all of this that we have achieved to make another league and possibly become the best team in Africa. I mean, right now, yes, the Algerians won the AFCON, but our team at AFCON was, you know, quite competitive. So we're not too far from being the best team in Africa. I mean, we spanked Cameroon during the World Cup qualifiers. It looks like we're not too far from being the best side in Africa. We just need to be a little bit more patient to stick to what is working. Um, I wouldn't say to reduce our expectations, but to manage our expectations. I found a lot of Nigerians being disappointed and Nigeria losing to the eventual champions via a late free kick. And I was like, 
we didn't even qualify for the last two episodes of this same competition. Where is the disappointment coming from? Where is the disappointment coming from? I, I hope you, you get the point I'm trying to make. I think yeah. about, about about 14 of our players were playing at their first AFCON or something like that. I hope I'm right. These are facts. These are facts. We've had a manager, his win rate is really high. We qualify very easily. We beat some of the best teams in Africa effortlessly. The team is well-defined. There's stability. We are not hearing rumors of strange players being invited. Obviously, there's no chaos. Players are not fighting for their bonuses. We are making progress. And we should continue in that journey. And hopefully, by the next AFCON, or the one after, eventually we'll get back to the summit of African football. So a bit of patience is necessary. But I certainly think that the Super Eagles trajectory is on the upward. Raw, I think, has done a good job. And I think that he should be allowed to continue to do that job. And I think that we should also support him as he continues to do that job. One final thing. Didier Drogba or Samuel Eto'o? Why are we having that conversation? Why are we having that conversation? Let's say he's the greatest African footballer of all time. Samuel Eto'o is the best striker ever from Africa. The data is there. It's clear. as daylight. Let's say he's the best African striker. Drogba! For the record, Chelsea fans will disagree with you. (laughs) Obviously, they will. And Drogba was the beneficiary of a lot of great reportage, right? I mean, his personality connects with the average African. You know, he's a fighter, he's a warrior type. He's very, very physical. So that connects. But in terms of pure numbers, he doesn't come close to Samaletto. He doesn't come anywhere close to Samaletto. Samaletto is he's one of the best strikers in European football history, actually. He's not just Africa. And I don't think there's a competition between him. In terms of popularity, it's probably as popular as Eto, because like I said, Drogba obviously was a media talent and connected across the African continent. But in terms of actuals, there's no basis for comparison. All right, Biola Kazim, thank you very much. It's been fantastic doing this with you. I totally enjoyed myself. Thank you very much. You can subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Again, untrapped.substack.com and also get notified about future episodes.